Acts chapter 20, verse 22, the moment you've been waiting for. And now behold, Paul said, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying, the bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul spoke about his course and the ministry. I want to speak to you tonight on those two words, the ministry. God bless you. Please be seated. The favorite words in Pentecost. You may be seated. In the month of September, I taught a lot about families. and October, our missions conference and transitioning to the ministries and that we're to take the gospel to everyone, everywhere, to the ends of the earth, culturally and geographically. So I prayed about this last Wednesday of October, felt directed of the Lord to talk about the ministry. What is, what is the ministry? I read a story about a pastor of a rural church who's invited to dinner on Sunday afternoon at the house of some members in the church. The member was a farmer. They enjoyed a wonderful country dinner of fried chicken and all the fixings. And after dinner, they were sitting in the rocking chairs on the porch, just chatting, fellowshipping, and the pastor looked out across the lawn, and on a fence post, he saw a rooster perched on that fence post, and that rooster looked really like he was the man, you know. So the pastor said to the farmer, he said, you know, that's a mighty proud rooster you have there. And the farmer said back to his pastor, he should be proud. His son just entered the ministry. <laughs> and in case it hasn't dawned on you yet, the pastor had the rooster's son for dinner. You can eat a young rooster. I, uh, I'm a preacher, but I'm not a preacher's kid. And I didn't really recognize my call to preach until I was 18 or 19 years old. And 18, I would say it was a little iffy. 19, probably, I, I knew more for sure. But this may surprise you, but after my first semester of Bible college, I almost changed my major to music. Most of you don't know this, but I took eight years of classical piano and played my trumpet through junior high, senior high, Bible college, and never been a great pianist but or singer, but I love music and grew up singing a lot, but I was just trying to figure it out. But I made this observation that usually the people who preach are preachers. And so when preachers preach about the ministry and about the call of God, they usually preach it in the context of the fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's been my practice in the last couple of decades since becoming pastor that when I preach about the call of God, that I try to, to cast a wider net, to not define it too much, to let God define what ministry means to the person that God is calling. 
Sometimes the Lord will give you a specific message that it's a call to missions or ministry. And I feel quite certain that this past Wednesday night and this past Sunday at Missions Conference, many of us felt a renewed call to the ministry that God has charged us with. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 tells us that we all have a similar calling unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs, their Lord, and our Lord. Uh, Brother J.T. Pugh said it is nice if a preacher is also a Christian. I've learned that that's a good thing, you know. If, if a preacher is also a saint, they go together pretty well. Not always true, but I think it kind of should be true. I think you might agree with that. Romans 1 and 7 Paul said the same thing, we're called to be saints. So I was thinking about the call of God, the ministry, and the way we define ministry and see ministry. I think you have a broader understanding of ministry as the local church body because for 27 years, we preach that everybody has a place of ministry in the body of Christ. And I do believe in the Bible, Ephesians 4, that they're governing ministries of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, but the ministry is broader than that. So I started thinking about uh, what the ministry is in the United Pentecostal Church. So I'm a credentialed minister with the UPCI, the largest oneness Pentecostal organization. And there are, as of our last report, 11,267 credentialed ministers in the United Pentecostal Church in the United States and Canada. We say North America, but Mexico would also be considered North America. But by our definition as an organization, United States and Canada, we say North America. And I double-checked today. I text Brother Bernard's secretary, Rhonda Morley. We have approximately 800,000 constituents in our churches in the United States and Canada over 5 million people around the world, 800,000 UPCI constituents in North America. That's based on our best statistics of gathering information and extrapolating that based on the number of churches and reporting. Well, if that's accurate, that means that just 1.4% of our constituents are credentialed ministers. We say licensed, local, general And ordination is a credential, so we say credentialed. So 1.4% of 800,000 people who say they're United Pentecostal have a card in their wallet or somewhere that says that they're a licensed minister of the United Pentecostal Church International. I know that's really simple math, but that means 98.6% of UPCI constituents are not credential ministers. So there's a great need for God to call people into the ministry of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But statistically, most of our saints, like my mom and dad were, they're not going to be called to preach in the formal sense. You may not be a credentialed UPCI minister, but I believe that you have a ministry that God has called every one of us not just to be saints, but he's placed us in the body of Christ and gifted us to make a difference. 
It would be tragic, and it would be a catastrophe if the only anointed people of those 800,000 people were the 1.4% that had a card somewhere, you know, in their pocket or wherever it is, and if those were the anointed ones. That's never been the biblical paradigm. That's not our paradigm as a United Pentecostal church. It's certainly not our paradigm as a local church. So I just want to remind you that God filled you with the Holy Ghost. He empowered you for ministry. And that if the church does God's work in the earth, it will not be because 1.4% of people are anointed or gifted or preach. This is our work to do together. Amen. It's the ministry that God has called us to. Amen. The entire body of Christ is called a place for you, saved to serve. We say it often, but not just as a way to get somebody to open a door or run a soundboard or sing or teach or work in the nursery, but for your sake because God placed you in the body. And every member of the body of Christ has a function and is needed, and the body is interdependent, amen. No one in the body of Christ can disown anyone else in the body of Christ. No one in the body can say that you don't need every other member of the body. The entire body of Christ is vital to building up the body of Christ and to doing the work of the ministry. You've heard me say this before. It wasn't part of my notes, but someone said the modern-day church is like a giant spectator sport, like a football game. There's 70,000 people desperately in need of exercise. Watching 22 men who are desperately in need of rest. That's what many churches have become. Spectator sport. Scorecards. Armchair quarterbacks. I've learned that the greatest critics are the people who do the least. The people that are deep in the work of God are too busy working to criticize. And that sometimes critics are afraid to do anything because they might face the same criticism that they give to everybody else. Amen. Well, that was all for free. It's important to understand your calling and to fulfill the ministry that the Lord has given to you. Uh, I've talked about my dad through the years, dad and mom, but I was blessed really with an amazing father and it's more a miracle the older I get and realize where he came from, what a miracle it was that he was such a good man and a good dad. My dad was an anointed song leader. We didn't have praise teams or praise leaders. He was a, he was a song leader. We sung out of the book, and he, had a, he used a lot of variety of songs. And, and I've seen my dad get so anointed leading song service. He was used of God in a pretty powerful way. But my dad was not a preacher. I remember my dad sharing with me as I grew up a little older in my later teenage years. He said, you know, Daryl, I, I, I wonder if I was called to preach and I miss my calling. And I've thought many times about some of those conversations. It was not just one time. It wasn't like something my dad said all the time. But because I, I've looked back and tried to understand what God did in my amazing dad's life, but to think that, that my dad, who was such a good man, 
would feel that he had missed something God had for him when in everything I can see, he did exactly what God wanted him to do. And so I've kind of analyzed that, thought about it, and you know, maybe when my dad was young in the church and God was anointing him, probably a well-meaning person came up and said, why, Brother George, you're so anointed, and maybe they called him to preach. Maybe that feeling of anointing that he had inside of him, he didn't know how to, to exactly express it. And, and when it came out and leading worship and exhorting people, maybe he thought, well, this must be the anointing. And what I've observed, and I spoke about this earlier, than casting a wide net and not, not defining from the pulpit what God is saying. Let God define that to the person. But I really believe my dad and not judging anybody's calling and especially my dad, but I watched his life. And, and when he got older, when people would say, well, Brother Johns, are you a preacher? He would say, no, I just raise them. You know, three out of four of his kids you know, went in ministry. So, you know, I just raised preachers. But I, I, I thought about, and I'm repeating myself, that was sad to me to think that my dad would be so affected, so respected, so anointed, gifted, and then feel this sense of, of missing the will of God in his life. Now, I'm saying that to help, you know, take some pressure off you and to give understanding to the will of God. Because preachers preach about the call of God and the ministry. Again, we can define it in its more narrow sense of the governing ministries of the church and there are people, everybody that has the Holy Ghost, believers are going to lay hand, hands on the sick and they shall recover. So that's everybody. So when you feel that anointing, maybe God is calling you to preach in the classical sense. But maybe not. Maybe God is just saying, you're in my body. You're filled with my spirit. And I'm anointing you because I want to use you in the body of Christ. Amen. Now, for me, defining the call of God was a process, and I've taught lessons about it to young people. I've taught on it here a little bit because I wanted us all to have an understanding about the call of God. I don't want you to misinterpret what you feel when you feel anointing, that when God anoints you, that's a good thing, and you shouldn't feel condemned because you feel anointed for ministry and you feel fulfilled doing what God's called you to do, and you don't really want to go behind a pulpit or a, a microphone or behind a Bible, and for what it's worth, neither did I. And I was scared to death to think that God wanted me to be a preacher. My first few times proved that I should not be a preacher. <laughs> Pretty humiliating. I will never forget Brother T.L. Craft, one of the most outgoing people, a man of faith, he said the first time he ever preached, he got up, he didn't know he was, what he was going to preach. And back then, you probably weren't supposed to think about it or too much. You're just supposed to get up and let her fly, you know. And he thought about it. He said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he said, it's just like a wino who gets one drink and wants a whole lot more. I believe that's what he said. And then he just fainted right on the platform, just like that. <laughs> that was his first sermon. Despise not the day of small things. 
So part of, part of my message tonight is to help us be content in our calling. Outside of Atlanta West, I typically know how God uses me in leadership and committees and boards and kind of strategic some, special meetings, leadership, and a lot of teaching more than being that main night speaker. I've done that, and if I'm asked to, I'll do my very best. But when I first went to work in the youth division, you know, you're expected to preach a lot of youth camps and special meetings, and it was a stretch for me. I had never preached in those kind of events before, and I had to really go to work and learn, and thank God I worked for Brother Jerry Jones, one of the greatest preachers in the United Pentecostal Church, and I tried to go to school on him and get better, but I have a calling and a gifting and a nature, and I've tried to learn to be comfortable in my own shoes, to bring my own shoes and not try to fill someone else's shoes. So I want to try to take a little pressure off of you to be something that God has not called you to be. But also the right kind of pressure to be everything God has called you to be. Because there are ditches on either side of the road. Amen. God, Paul said, has set the members in the body as it pleased him. Amen. So when we feel the anointing of God, we should not automatically assume that we're feeling a call to preach. If you are, that's good. And again, I'm not minimizing that. Now, I told you I'm not a preacher's kid, but I was raised in a good church, and I never really felt a particular pressure to become a preacher. My pastor's son was a very good friend of mine, and I think he did feel that kind of preacher. I worked in a Bible college for 10 years and then three years at, at Gateway later, but less hands-on. And I've observed preachers' kids that felt pressured to preach. And sometimes well-meaning people will say things to preachers' kids. But my wife and I have tried to take that pressure off our boys. You cannot change who you are. But I didn't want our boys to be called because their dad was a preacher or because someone that was well-meaning called them to preach. We wanted it to be the Lord. And I'm thankful. I'm not trying to brag or complain, but I'm thankful that all of our boys have a unique calling on their life, and they're pursuing that calling. But I think they would say that they never felt pressure from my wife or me to push them to be something that God was not calling them to be. And sometimes you can feel like a particular slot is already filled in your family and we sure don't need two or three preachers in the same family and so that spot's filled, I have to do something else. There's a lot of room for us to do what God has called us to do and not do something out of pressure whether it is externally imposed or internally imposed. We want to do the will of God. Now Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 Give us some of the ministries in the church. Ephesians 4 gives us the fivefold ministry, but Romans 12, and I just want to read through them. I don't have time to teach, and it's not my purpose tonight, but that the ministry of prophesying, prophecy, and serving. It could be the role of a leader in the church who helps a pastor. There's a ministry of teaching, Romans 12, 7, of exhorting or encouraging, Romans 12, 8 of giving that is to be done with simplicity in Romans 12, 8. 
There's the, the gifting or ministry of administration called ruling in the King James that is to be performed with diligence. That's verse 8. There's a gift of mercy that is to be demonstrated or used with cheerfulness. Sometimes when a person is compassionate and merciful, they can be overcome with like the heaviness of mercy. And Paul writes under the anointing of the Spirit that you show mercy with cheerfulness. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 28 as a gift of helps, which is very broad. And in a, in a local church, the people that kind of are those utility players, if it was a, a sports team, that they're good in more than one position. And I've tried to say to young men and women who wanted to make a difference in the church to be really versatile. Don't just be uh, good at one thing. Try to be able to be versatile where you can help your church in multiple ways and you can serve wherever it is needed as well as your sweet spot or where you're specifically gifted. So there are people who have told me, I feel like my ministry is a gift of helps. And my goal is to just strengthen and help our church however I can, wherever I'm needed. That is a powerful, needed gift in the church. Now, we teach in our church that you have a ministry shape. Your spiritual gifts, your heart for ministry, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences. But we believe that God gets involved in all of that and he directs your steps so that you can fulfill your calling. I want to explain briefly Paul's calling because that's the context of Acts 20, 24. Now, I can't take a deep dive in this either, but he said that he was called to be an apostle. He was, excuse me, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, and separated under the gospel. He says three things that he was called to do. An apostle is one who is sent. He is separated to be a preacher from the gospel. He said in Galatians that he was separated from his mother's womb. He was an apostle in that unique calling to go where Christ was not named, where there was no church, no witness, no gospel. And he went, that was his calling, his most specific calling to go to where there was nothing and lay a foundation and lead something behind. Galatians 2.7 says that he was called specifically to the Gentiles or the uncircumcision. In 1 Corinthians 9, he said that the seal of his apostleship was those Corinthian people that he'd established in the Lord in the 18 months he spent there. Acts 13.1 say that Paul and Barnabas and others were prophets and teachers. Paul was a very special man, but like Paul had an anointing, we also have anointings and giftings in our lives, which leads me to Acts chapter 20. Now, this is an amazing chapter, like all the chapters of the Bible, but Paul is at Miletus, and he sends back to Ephesus, and he asks for all the leaders to come and meet with him. So this is what you call the Ephesian retreat. I call the Ephesian retreat. It's all the ministers. And Paul begins to talk to them about his ministry among them, that he was with them in all seasons, that he endured tears and temptations, 
and the ambush, intended ambush of the Jews. He didn't hold back anything that was profitable for them. He preached repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. But then he told them in verse 22, I'm now going bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. And I don't know what's going to befall me there. The only thing he said I know is that it's been prophesied, Agabus prophesied, that the man whose girdle or coat he bound would be bound in Jerusalem. Paul said, the Lord's already told me that bonds and afflictions abide me. And then he gives this verse 24 that I'll come back to. But he said, but none of these things move me. Everything that can happen to me doesn't change my mind about my ministry. And I don't count my life as anything that I am to preserve. It is not dear unto myself. But I can do two things. I want to finish my course and the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ has given me to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes on to tell them that after this meeting that they would never see him again. And he said, I want you to come to record today that I am free from the blood of all men. I've not shunned to declare to you all the gospel or the counsel of God. He warned them about false teachers and he told them that they needed to take heed to themselves and then to their gospel, that they were to be overseers to the church that the Lord had purchased with his own blood. At the end of his discourse, his teaching, the Bible says that they all went out and they knelt down and he prayed for all of them. They were weeping and hugging him, and they were sorrowing most of all for the words that he said that they would see his face no more. And then Paul got on a ship and sailed away, and the Ephesian leaders went back. It is in the context of this Ephesian retreat, these words to these leaders of the church in Ephesus, probably not all pastors or apostles or prophets, but spiritual leaders there, that he gives us this verse. I want to read it again. Acts 20, 24. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of Christ. None of these things move me. I've already mentioned this, but it's the things that would befall him in Jerusalem. Paul had prophecies over his life but he didn't know the details of how that would play out. I'm not sure he knew then that he would be cast on a certain island. They would be in a shipwreck. It would be 14 days when they would not see sun or moon or stars. That Paul's life would be filled with all kinds of trouble. And there would be the thorn in his flesh. Paul spoke about bonds and imprisonments. And, and then in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, he gives a little catalog of the things that happened to him in his ministry. Labors, stripes, you know, beatings, prisons, fear of death, beat five times by the Jews, three times beaten with rods, once stoned to death, I believe, or to the point of death and raised back up, stoned at Lystra. Three times he was in a shipwreck. We only know the details of one of those shipwrecks. A day and a night, 
He spent floating out in the ocean. Was that in Acts 27 or another time? That's what Paul did for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said many journeys, not by plane, by the way, perils of waters and robbers and his own countrymen, heathen, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils of false brethren, weariness, painfulness, watchings often, hunger, thirst, fasting, cold, nakedness. He lists 13 kinds of hardship that he would go through. But in all of that, he said, none of these things move me. And I don't count my life dear to myself. Self-preservation is not even on my list, Paul said. But that's not just about apostleship. That's about discipleship. And Jesus said that if we don't even deny our own lives, that we cannot be his disciples. In verse 24, I want you to see this verse, but I want to point out one phrase in the middle where Paul says, so that I might finish my course with joy. Would you just say my course? Now, this is an interesting phrase that Paul saw life like a race, and he defined it as a race course. He likes sports illustrations. He said, they that run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. He tells us that he doesn't run randomly. He doesn't just, you know, he's not out for a little jog. He is in a race, and it is a predetermined course that he is running. Near the end of his life, he told Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4 and 7, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. He says that in Acts 20, 24. He tells Timothy that. And, and I see this in the course of Paul's life. We're all running the race. We're all wanting to go to heaven. But Daryl Johns has a course laid out by Jesus Christ that I am to run. It's not your course. There may be similarities. There's certainly commonalities with all of us in obedience to Jesus Christ. But it is like Simon Peter asking Jesus what would happen to John. And Jesus saying, what is it to you? If I should allow John to live until I come again, you just follow me, Simon. That I believe that you have a course that God has laid out for you. And part of my message tonight is, is this ministry and this course that we all have a divine obligation to stay on track, to not to deviate. I don't believe that you can prescribe your own course in life and just do whatever you want to do and ask God to bless it. I believe we should seek God and we should try to do the best with our life, vocationally, relationally, spiritually in ministry. Paul said, I have a course. It is, it is my course. And I want to finish my course with joy. That's important to this life. Does your course, talking about the race course that God has laid out for you, not this wide way that you have a lot of leeway, but a pretty specific defined course that you have to run. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. But does it have obstacles? Challenges? Is it restrictive? It sounds like a course designed by Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful, all of us, every one of us, whether we're a preacher or not, can get immersed with all the cares of life. 
and the commitments of life and get off course. We can run outside the boundary lines that God has ordained for us. Paul said, I have a course, it's my course. And he would write to the Galatians to be not weary in well-doing. You have to keep on keeping on. 1 Corinthians 9, 26 on the screens. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. That's a really interesting word, but it just means I do the opposite. I run with purpose. I run with intention. I have a course. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. I'm not just shadow boxing. I'm trying to make every punch in the fight of life count. I want to land every punch with purpose. And then he tells how. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul said that I might finish my course with joy. In Philippians 3, when he spoke about knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, he spoke again about this race, and he, he said, this is one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It, it means that he is straining in this race of life. It is my course. And then in Acts 20, 24, you can see it on the screen, and I just want you to see these three words, and the ministry. My course, and I believe you could say my ministry, but it's the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. And he defines it to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I didn't come tonight with a fill in the blank for you to write in that blank what your ministry is, but I think people who lead the most fulfilling and fruitful lives know what that is. They've learned through experience where they fit in the body of Christ and where they're the most productive and where they're the most fulfilled because when you're fruitful and fulfilling what God has designed you to do, then there's the joy. He's going to finish his course with joy and the ministry that was given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever done something and it just wore you out, exhausted you? Have you ever done anything that was harder work, but you were kind of amped up and excited and energized by that? Yeah, that's what you're supposed to be doing. When it, I know ministry is depleting and, you know, I could talk about that, but when you are doing what God has designed you to do, Typically, you're going to be fruitful. I hate to use the word successful. But you're also going to have the joy that comes from being in your place in the body of Christ. And the worst torture is to think that you should be somewhere else doing something else and not at peace with who you are and with what God has called you to do. My course and the ministry that's been given me by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, generically, the word ministry, uh, you know, is just to serve. 
That's what the ministry is. Whether you're an apostle or a prophet or whatever your place in the body is, it's a place to serve. And I believe that if you have a position, and I've held a few positions in my life, that you should serve the position and not make the position serve you. And if you're impressed when you get a position, you'll be depressed when you lose it. And if a position defines you, they all come and go. But you should be defined as a servant of Jesus Christ. You should be defined by a servant. Ministry is serving. And Jesus taught this to the disciples right before his death when they were all clamoring for a position, right hand, left hand, who should be the greatest. They missed the point. And he was the greatest and he was among them as one who served. And John 13, he took a towel and washed their feet. That's how he demonstrated his authority. Came from God, went to God, took a towel, washed their feet. He told them that they should do the same to one another. Amen. This ministry thing that God has called us to. See, at the end of life, the goal is to have Jesus say to you, well done. Good and faithful servant. That's been faithful over a few things. What I love about that is the five-talent man heard that and the two-talent man heard that. They were given different gifts, but it was still considered a few things in God's eyes. And it wasn't what they were given. And I know to whom much is given, much is required. But it is what they did with what they had. They just went out with their course and the ministry and made the best they could and were productive. And they heard, well done. If you're not on course and not productive in ministry, you can get back on track. If you've been sidelined by a spiritual injury, I pray the Lord would make you whole again so you can serve. Not perfect, not have everything figured out in life. If you've been hurt in ministry, and I pray that God will help you forgive so you can get up and serve again. Because if you serve in ministry, there will be times you feel forgotten, unappreciated. There will be times you'll be in the line of fire. Sometimes people will treat you like they feel toward God. Jesus said, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. I don't have time to tell a story about that. If you've been disqualified by serving in a certain area of ministry, why don't you let God do for you like he did in Jeremiah 18 with the clay that was marred in the hand of the potter. Find another place of meaningful ministry where you can serve. You see, your ministry is not optional. It is a spiritual obligation. It's the ministry that I've received of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The ministry is a calling from God. As I thought through this message, I wanted to help you be at peace with God's calling in your life. But I'm not trying to give you a pass to not fulfill God's calling in your life. 
Every one of us, not just the apostle Paul, every one of us have a course. Mike, would you just say my course? Would you please say the ministry? My course and the ministry. But as I thought about this, I, I thought about the hundreds, and, I, and I'm saying hundreds on purpose. The hundreds of people in our church who have found the ministry that God has for them. And week in and week out, you serve where you were gifted, and sometimes you just serve where you're needed. Not because you have some special gift to vacuum a floor or clean a bathroom or change a diaper, but because it's needed, and yes, you can do that. And yes, we all do. But I thank God for the people in this church that are living a life of ministry. And you make a huge difference in this church. You're making a difference over a period of time in the lives of thousands of people. And I choose the word thousands with thought on purpose. And not only that, but you are making an incredible difference for eternity. You're, tra- you're changing how eternity is going to look for people who are either going to heaven or going to hell. And by what you do, someone is being redirected from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, from hopelessness to hope. Amen. I want to show you the verse one more time, if you'd please stand. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. A life of ministry is not a life of self-preservation. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about balancing life and ministry. And there are ditches on either side of the road. I've observed people who neglected their family for ministry. And I've seen people who neglected ministry thinking they would save their family But Jesus said, you'll only find your life when you lose it. And where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And how do we expect our family to love God in the church when we've not invested much treasure there? They need to see us involved in ministry. And we need to do it not because they so they can see us, but because we were called and gifted to it. Amen. I don't count my life dear to myself, the verse again, so that I might finish my course with joy. Paul said, I'm pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God, the upward calling of God, crossing the finish line, crown of life. Paul said only one receives the prize that's a corruptible crown, a wreath. Different kinds, eucalyptus or pine or whatever they use in the Isthmus games in Corinth. But we're looking for an incorruptible crown. And Paul said, there's a crown of life that the Lord has for me and not for me only, but for all them that love his appearing. There's a crown for everyone who finishes their course. 
That's what brings joy and the ministry.